You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. So Judges chapter 19. We are finishing this book this week. Um, if you've been here with us for the, for the whole series, we started in January working through this, this not little book. It's, it's a significant book. It's been a rough, rough go. And so I am... I love the Bible and I love the Old Testament. This has been a rough book, so I'm not gonna be sad that we're finished, judges. Um, There's this movie that my family loves. Um, Many of you probably haven't seen it. You're probably too educated for that, but it's called Nacho Libre, all right? So it's one of our family. If you're you're like, I don't know what that is, it's fine, I understand, because you went to college. I did too, but I still love Nacho Libre. But it's about this, if if you've never seen it, I can't even describe it, but it's about a, a monk who is a luchador, uh, and he, he works in an orphanage, and he's in charge of the food, right? And so, and one day he brings out the food, he's in charge of feeding all the monks and all the orphans, and there's this line, and it cracks me, there's a bunch of lines I can't share, but there's this line I can, and he hands it to one of the older monks, and the, and, the, and the older monk says, this is the worst lunch I've ever had. And it's, I, I read Judges 19 through 21, and I think, this is the worst lunch I've ever had. It is, if it's not the worst story in all of the scripture, it's one of them. It's gotta be in the top three. I mean, it is the most depressing, dark, there's no hero, there's no redemption, there's no, it's an absolute mess. And what I told you last week is these last five chapters of the book of Judges are like appendices, right? There's no judges anymore. It's just kind of two snapshots of what was life like during the time of the judges, a time where there was no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So what is that, when that tape is played out, what does it look like? What does it just look like for average Joe, average Jane, living in Ephraim, living in, in and, and so we have two stories to show you what it looks like when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And, and we've seen this cycle throughout the book, right? And this last time I'll show it to you. Uh, as we finish. So this cycle that we've seen time and time again, seven times over, where the people would fall into sin, rebellion, uh, idolatry, whatever it was. God would be patient for a season, but eventually he would bring a nation, uh, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Midianites, whoever, to judge the people. They would stay enslaved to them for a certain amount of time until they finally woke up. Uh, Sometimes they repent, sometimes they don't, but there's some sorrow and God sends a savior, a judge, a Gideon, a Jephthah, an Othniel, an Ehud, to to rescue them, and things would go well for a season until that judge died, and then they'd go right back in. These two appendices at the end of the book seem to take place in this part of the cycle, because there doesn't seem to be anybody else kind of oppressing them or judging them at the time. So this is in a time of, of God's patience, when he is waiting for them to turn, but this is what it's like when the people are just doing what's right in their own eyes. It's the worst lunch I've ever had is what it is. Uh, and, and it's easy for us as a church to, to look at the world. The, the world that we live in is it's a lot different than it was maybe 20, 30 years ago. Uh, it's a dark place, just like it was dark in the time of Israel. I did just some quick checkups uh, this week statistically about America, just America. And in the, in the, in the first, in my time in the first service and then by the end of this service, there's gonna be two people statistically Every hour murdered in America. That's how many times, that's, that's, the, that's the average. There's going to be, let me read it because I forgot the exact number. Um, there's gonna be 11 
people raped in the next hour, statistically, in America. 36 robberies in the next hour in America. 92 people assaulted in the next hour in America. That's what happens when everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And it's really easy, and this is what we do as a church. We get real mad, oh, how bad is the world? Ooh, we're frustrated, ooh, Jesus, what are you doing? God, please return, even so come, Lord Jesus, right? And we think that, that it's, it's, oh, it's, it's the worst thing ever. And Jesus is saying, I'm not, Jesus is not wringing his hands over, over how dark it is. He tells us that the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against his church. And it's not that he's not doing anything, he is. You know what he's doing? He sent us. He has sent his church. He says, you, you are my, my light. You, you are my salt. You wanna know what I'm doing? This is what I'm doing, CBC. I've sent you to be a difference maker. I've sent you into that darkness, right? And so we don't need to lose hope, but here's what we don't want. We don't want this to become our story because I told you last week, the problem with these narratives is not that it's the Philistines. It's not that it's the Moabites. It's not that it's the Midianites. This is the people of God. This is their story. And what we wanna make sure is it's not our story. And it could be so easily, right? And so we're gonna work through these narratives. We're gonna run, we're gonna sprint. You better buckle your pew belt and we're gonna roll so I told you last week to read ahead because we're not gonna be able to cover everything. But it is one big narrative and I wanna unpack the entire thing so you can see the story. But we're gonna run through it and I wanna just give you some, just some thoughts, some principles, some whatever. So this would not be our story. So that we can be encouraged, so that we can be light in the midst of dark. When everyone's doing right in his own eyes, that we would be different. So fasten your pew belt, let's roll, right? Verse one. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. So we got this Levite, which is kind of like the pastor of his day, right? And he takes a concubine, which is kind of like a lesser wife. It's like an appendage to a wife. It's an extra wife which he knows is not ordained by God, but this is what the culture does. So he is just like the rest of the culture. And an old girl, it says in, in the ESV, uses the word unfaithful. Other translations say she gets angry with him. We don't know why. Maybe because he wouldn't put a ring on it. I don't know. But she runs home. She runs home to dad. And she stays for four months. Well, he goes and gets her. Husband arose, went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And he had a servant with him and a couple donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy. Why did he come with joy? Because his daughter moved back in. He was an empty nester. And those of you who are empty nesters are like, no, here he's coming. I see some of you nodding, right? We got rid of you. You're not supposed to come home again. So when the, when the husband comes, he's like, woo, he's happy. And so what ends up happening is they stay a couple days. The father and all the hospitality that day is a lot different than us. They stay a couple days and they get to day five and the man is like, okay, we got to roll. We got to go home. They pack up the donkeys. The father's like, well, I'll just have breakfast with us and then just have lunch. And then it's the afternoon. He's like, well, just stay for until tomorrow and then you can go tomorrow. And the guy's like, no, we have to go. I cannot spend the night another night. So verse 10, the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus. That is Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem at this time is not the Jerusalem like we knew in, in most of the Old Testament. It is a, is a Gentile city. It's still the Jebusites are there. It's gonna be for a couple of years. All right, so he has his donkeys with him and his concubine was with him and they were near Jebus and the day was almost dark and you don't wanna ride on the road at night then. Very dangerous. It's like you don't get on I-16 in the evening going to Atlanta because if you break down, we'll never find you, right? Somewhere up there in Dublin or whatever. So, so you don't travel at night, so they need to find a city. And his servant says, let's go to, let's go to the Jebusites and spend the night there. And his master said, no, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners. We do not belong to that people, who do not belong to the people of Israel. We will go to Gibeah. So he's like, hey, let's stay in Statesboro. And people are like, no, we don't want to stay in Statesboro. We'll go to a good Bible Belt city. We'll go to Pooler. We'll just go a little further. Avoid Statesboro, go to Pooler, right? That's the idea, okay? So they're going to find a Jewish city. So they pass one on the way. The sun goes down near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turn aside and they go and spend the night there. Okay, good. We got us a good Bible Belt city, right? And they start, they sit in the open square and no one took them in their house. And that day there's no Holiday Inn Express, okay? So what you did is you'd go into a square and, and their hospitality, someone would say, where are you staying? Come stay with us for the night, only it doesn't happen. Until an older gentleman from the north, it says, from Ephraim, he comes, he comes through and says, where are y'all from? He says, we're from here, we're going there, we're here, but no one's taking us in. We don't need anything. We have food, we got hay, we got all we need. We just need a place to crash. The guy says, you can crash with me. Just don't spend the night in the square. Peace be you, I'll care if you want. Don't spend the night in the square. And that's when you start to think, well, why not? I mean, you're in Pooler. What can happen in Pooler? Right? It's a good city, right? But we'll see what's gonna happen. So they go in. They're making their hearts merry, which means they're having a little Gibeah Guinness or something, right? They're having a good little steak and some Guinness. And the men of the city, worthless fellows, surround the house, start beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Okay, that's, that's a euphemism for they want to rape him, right? And if you're like, this is, this is kind of, a, I, I've heard this before. Where did I hear this? You did hear this before. Genesis chapter 19, when a guy named Lot lived in a town named Sodom and two angels came into town and the same exact thing almost happens. But here's the big difference. This ain't Sodom. This is the Bible Belt. It's poor. It's Gibeah. It's the people of God. And so the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. And you think, well, yeah, this guy's gonna stand for truth. Yeah. Next verse. Here's my daughter. And here's his concubine. Let me take them out to you. Violate them. Do whatever seems good to you. That phrase seems good to you in the Hebrew is do what's right in your eyes. Same idea of this book, right? But against this man, don't do this. He's a Levite. Don't do this outrageous thing. The men would not listen. So the man, the man, get this, the Levite, the pastor, seizes his concubine, throws her outside. And they abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and she, she crashes at the door of the house. Where's he? Sleeping his little self away. Safe inside. And he comes in the morning, he opens the door he went to go on his way. Behold, there's his concubine lying at the threshold. And he says, get up, time to go. Great guy. Wouldn't you want to be part of his church? But there's no answer. Why? Because she's dead. 
She's been murdered. She's been abused to death. They put her on the donkey and the man rose and went his way to his home. And he entered the house and he took a knife and taking hold of the concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. He desecrates the body and he puts it in the mail and he sends a piece to every tribe. And you're thinking, what in the world exactly? And so even the people, the people of Israel, they say such a thing has never happened or been seen from that day. The people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. What should we do? Consider it, take counsel, speak. They're they're dumbfounded. I can't believe this happened. And so chapter 20, all the people come out from Dan to Beersheba and they get 400,000 soldiers together, men on foot who drew the sword, all of Israel. And, And they ask him, what happened? Tell us what happened, dude. And so he tells them, verse four, and the Levite, the husband of the woman said, who was murdered, said, I came to Gibeah, it belongs to Benjamin, me and my concubine, we spent the night. The leaders of Gibeah rose, surrounded the house. Uh, they meant to kill me. They violated my concubine. He leaves out all the good details, like I threw her out. I slept through the night. It wasn't just all the men of Gibeah. It was actually just the worthless men of Gibeah. And so I took my whole, I, this is what I did. I took her home. I cut her into pieces. And I sent her throughout for they have committed an abomination, an outrage. So he twists the story to make himself look good. The Benjamites look bad. And then he says, you tell me what we should do. And what do you think they're gonna say? They're gonna say, we're gonna wipe them all out, which is what they end up doing. It's a horrible story. It's the worst lunch I've ever had. So what, what is it that we can learn? How do, what do we take from this? Let me give you a thought. First principle is that we as a church need to guard against hypocrisy. Now look, we're all hypocrites to a point. You're like, no, I'm not a hypocrite. No, you're a liar and a hypocrite, right? The problem with hypocrisy is you don't see it. That's, that's the problem. We can't, we can't often see it. Um, like this Levite, he's, he's a hypocrite. He's all upset that his concubine was killed. Okay, rightfully so. But he fails to see his part in the deal, right? His responsibility. First of all, he has a concubine, in the first place, he's not supposed to do that. He's the pastor. He's supposed to be the example for the people to follow. He's just like the rest of the world. And then, why does she get killed? Because he's weak sauce. Because he throws her out. He should go out with a baseball bat. Come on, boys, let's go. And if I'm going, if she's going, I'm going down. That's how it should have run. What does he do? He's a coward. Right? So he doesn't even see it that way. He, he, oh, it's, it's so bad, right? He ignores his responsibility. He ignores his deal. It's hypocrisy. You think we ever do that in a church? I mean, not us, but other churches. I mean, we would never do that. We're a community Bible church. <laughs> we would never do that. But I mean, other churches, right? We would never like be upset about how the culture just devalues marriage and now we're marrying this and you can marry anything you want and be all, oh, I can't believe the immorality of these teenagers these days and all the Snapchat and all. We'd never get upset about all that. But then, for fail to ask the question, well, how's my marriage? How do I treat my spouse? How do I treat my, my neighbors? How do I guard my own heart from what I'm watching? Right? I mean, we'll talk about how bad this is, but we ignore our own deal. We get all upset. I can't believe this culture, the gender stuff in the bathroom. Oh, it's a craziness. It is craziness. It's wacko. And we should, we should talk about that. At the same time, though, let's not ignore the fact that in the church of America, greed runs rampant. Envy and gossip and slander run free. Right? But we have the right bathrooms. 
And, and what I'm trying to get you to see is, why is it that we get mad about this, but we don't get mad about this? Because this is much more palpable. It's much more acceptable. In fact, great book, you ought to read it. Maybe your community group, maybe as a couple, Acceptable Sins, Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. It's worth your read. But we'll, uh, envy, yes, it's a lesser sin. Pride, eh, even though it got Satan cast out of heaven and it, it is the responsible for the fall of man, it's a lesser sin than this, Right? This is, pal, this, is, this is okay, this is acceptable, this is not. I can't believe my kids, I mean, they're always on the phone. Why are they always on their phone? I can't believe they're always on technology and on technology. And then when your kid comes to you and says, mom, can you help me with this math problem? What's that? Do you think this picture's better? Why didn't you like my posts, sweetheart? Oh, I can't believe they would wear that. What would you say, honey? Oh, I can't believe my children would lie to me. They're so disrespectful. And your boss calls, hey, did you get that project done? Yeah, I did it yesterday. Man, I gotta get that done. But it's the kid lying to you. That's, oh yeah, that's bad. But when I, when I do it, I'm the parent. I pay taxes. I can lie. Right? It's hypocrisy. And one of the marks of, of hypocrisy, just so we can kind of identify it, is that you start ranking sins. That's what you do. Right, just like they do here. So for this, this guy, this older gentleman, uh, heterosexual rape is okay, but homosexual rape, that's, that's vile. Oh, really? The abuse of any person is wicked, period. And by the way, anything outside the context of marriage between a man and a woman is immorality. It's all immorality, whatever it is. We can't be cherry picking our sins here, right? You looking at porn secretly, lusting after that person, immorality. Homosexual relationship, immorality. It's all immorality. We can't get all ranking it. Oh, that's really, it's, it's sin. It needs to be repented of, right? It's, it's, it's hypocrisy. We, as a nation, the nation here is all upset. I can't believe you cut the body up. I can't believe how horrible you treated that dead body. Well, how about how they treated that live body? I mean, she was alive. She was abused. How horrible. But they're upset about that, but they're not upset about that. Right? See, what we do when we rank sins, we always pick and choose those sins what we don't struggle with, <laughs> right? So that's where we cherry pick. So if you're a hardworking blue collar guy and, and laziness is not in your deal, so you're gonna, you're gonna be all up in arms about that guy whose kids don't have jobs and blah, 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 but you're, but you're gonna neglect the fact that you've worked four months straight without a day off, you haven't taken a vacation with your family in three years and you've been blowing off the Sabbath principle of rest. Why? Because you don't struggle with you don't, you, struggle, you don't struggle with hard work, but you struggle with rest. But you'll ignore that because that guy's got lazy teenagers. See what we do? We pick and choose, right? We, we, we talk about how bad that guy's kids talk to him, but you miss the fact that you treat your employees like dirt. And it's just hypocrisy, right? Or here's what we do in America really good, right? I'm, I mean, and if some of you are gonna be offended and that's okay, I just, I'll turn my email off this week. I don't care, right? When we, come, when we have a politician that we really think that aligns with us, or we align with them, we will, blow, we will ignore train wrecks of sins. Maybe because they put a little bit more money in our pocket, maybe because they're part of our party, maybe because it make, it's popular, and we will ignore all sorts of things and say, well, you know, yeah, he, he's, he's bad or she's bad, but not as bad as X. And I can pray for this kind of president, but I can never pray for this kind of president. Well, scripture says to pray for all your leaders. 
And, and at the context there, it was Nero. So if, if Peter and Paul can pray for Nero, then you can pray for a president you don't like or a politician that you don't like or a mayor you don't like or whatever. But we don't get to pick and choose and say, yeah, well, they're part of this party, so they're, they're more righteous. Jesus is not part of a political party. He's the sovereign king of the world, the universe, actually. And so, but we do that all the time. Or we'll say, oh, I can't forgive this person, uh, but you need to forgive that person. And what I just want us to open our eyes to is we all do this. So let's just be aware of it. Let's not, let's not deny it because if we deny it, we end up this being our story. We just need a little bit of humility and transparency to say, yeah, so that we'll be on guard and we need to be in community so others can say, you know what, you're doing this. And so we, we have enough humility to listen and respond. Another thing that happens when, we're, when there's hypocrisy, when, when God is thrown out of the mix not just do sins get ranked, but people get ranked. Like in the text. Who's more important, the Levite or the teenage girl and the concubine? Well, the Levite. So we'll throw the, the ladies out because their value is not as much as him. See what they did there? And, and it's hypocrisy, right? People get ranked. And we have a culture who ranks the value of people. And, and, and the biggest thing is we can't do it here. And it cannot be amongst the people of God because we believe, according to the scripture, that all people are made in the image of God, regardless of race, sex, ability, all that stuff. Because they are God's image, they are equal in dignity and value. And so if we believe that, then we have to act on that. Anything else is hypocrisy. Right? So this is why we say, and keep coming back to, that what's going on upstairs right now with those five-year-olds is just as valuable as this in God's eyes, right? Now, maybe they didn't spend 25 hours in their sermon, but in God's eyes, that is significant and huge. And it is not a throwaway. It is not babysitting. It is just as much discipleship as this, right? It's, it's huge for us as a church. What we do in CBC Kids, downstairs and upstairs, uh, with the 250-ish kids that we have on a Sunday, it's one of the most important things we do. And here's what you need to remember. Many of you have been in churches where there's zero kids. It's just a bunch of bald people or silver-haired people, right? And, and how exciting and lively is that church typically? It's usually, it's usually three years from gone. If... If CBC is gonna be around in 30 years, 40 years, then what happens up there is maybe the most important thing we do. Because that's the future elders. That's the, that's the future deacons, deaconesses, leaders, Sunday school teachers, moms, engineers at Gulfstream, whatever, upstairs. It's our job to equip them, right? To not, to be, to be a throwaway is hypocrisy. What we do in, in neighbors, CBC neighbors, huge, huge, right? It, it take, meeting needs and, and pointing people to Jesus. And, and last week, a bunch of y'all went out and, and kind of just met your neighbors. And some of y'all are here this morning and we're so thankful that you've come this week because we've been wanting you to come for a long time. But what we do in this, see, you gotta you got remember that God put CBC in this neighborhood back in 09 for a reason. He gave us that building. And then he, he let us build this building. 
And then he let us redo that building. He's given us three buildings in this neighborhood. It is, uh, it is not only our responsibility, it is an opportunity for us to see that as a significant piece of who we are. And, and this is moderately controversial, maybe, maybe not. Let me just, but I'm gonna say it anyway because I don't care. It's not the government's job to take care of South Gardens. Right? It, is, it is the church that God has put here. Now, I'm not saying the government doesn't have a role in doing things. It is our responsibility to help those who are, in our culture, we abuse the weak. It's only the strong survive. It is our job to be difference makers however we can do it. Because there's folks that, that have not had opportunities that some of you had. Some of you had your college paid for, you got sent off, you grew up in this kind of home, you never had to buy a car. You, that's not the story of everybody. It is our job to do what we can. We can't do it all. For goodness sake, we can change the trajectory of certain people's lives with the gospel and with other things. It's, it's our job as a church. That's why God has put us in this neighborhood and we're gonna continue to do it and would love for you to be a part of it, right? If you're a high school or a middle school or elementary student or whatever and you see someone getting picked on in the lunchroom or on, on, on Instagram or Snapchat, you should be the one that stops it, right? You should be the one that that, that person's alone, that person's being made fun of. You're the one that stops it. You, if, online abuse, if someone, they're making fun of her hair, she looks like something out of the 80s. First of all, don't mock the 80s. Second of all, you should be the one that deletes that and gets in those people grill. And if you get in a fight because you're defending someone, good for you. I'll come to your back. If you're, if you're defending the weak, if you're, if you're guarding the poor, right? That, that is your job. You should not, man, I do not want, and I, this is not our students, I know, but I do not want to find out that our students are the ones who are the making fun of, the mocking, or they're continuing that. And I know we, we all struggle with that, but right? It's huge. Poverty. We don't live in poverty. I mean, really, compared to the world. And some of you have less wealth than others, but compared to the world, this is why what we're doing with compassion is significant. And here's what Tom and the whole missions team, there's a bunch of them, but here's, here's what that team has, has, has kind of visioned for us, is we're going to do this compassion again this, this next Sunday where we're going to adopt some kids, 80 from one area and, and 40 from one of our missionaries in Rwanda. And the reason why, what I'm so I'm thankful for and I'm, I'm excited about what they've done is we're not just, it's not gonna be a shotgun approach. Like you get a kid from Costa Rica and you get a kid from Russia. We've actually adopted a community in the Philippines. One community. I actually have pictures from our community. Like Tom gave me. This is, the, this is a house in the community we're adopting these children. I guarantee that most of y'all's shed doesn't look like this, if you have a shed. But I guarantee that nobody lives in a house like this in this church. And what we're doing is we're gonna feed these children and then you get to see what they do when you come next Saturday and, and, and go through and how it is and what they get to eat. The, person, the people in this village that we're supporting, they, make, they live off about $68 a month. Some of you are gonna go to lunch today and you're gonna spend double that. And they live on in a month. And so we're gonna adopt 80 children from this village. And here's the best part. The reason why we did it from one village is so that we can go there. So in the next couple of years, you've been, you've been adopting, you know, little Janie from, from this little village and she's a teenager. You can fly over to the Philippines and meet her and hang out. Now that's cool. 
And it's not just food. They're actually, they're actually sharing Jesus and they're building the community and they want it. They're sharing the gospel with these children. Not that it's bad to give just food. But that, see, that's, you, you can't ignore poverty on this level, right? And so we're doing it there. We're also doing it with Rwanda with our pastor and the church planners that we work with there. So you can take, if you're like, oh man, I really love Africa, then you can take one of the orphans from Africa and Rwanda. So either one, but we, this is, we can't say that, yes, God loves people and you know, everyone's equal and just ignore it. We just can't. Trafficking. Some of, the, some of you work with, with, with this and are concerned with this. Should be. It's in America. Devastating. The prisons. There's a ministry that we kind of have a bunch of y'all work with, uh, Kairos. You, if you're interested in going to the prisons and ministering there, I know that's hard, but do not forget that some of God's choicest servants spent some time in prison. Joseph, Daniel, Johnny B, right, Paul, thief on the cross, right? And obviously, I mean, one of the most obvious for us as a culture is the unborn, right? Who are constantly in danger now. And I, I know this is, is in the front page of the news, especially Georgia with the, with the heartbeat bill that was just passed. What saddens me is this, um, is that Disney, CEO, I don't know if you saw this, the CEO of Disney says he's gonna, we can't make a movie in Georgia anymore because of the heartbeat bill. How ironic that the guy who's over Disney, the happiest place on earth, it's a place where kids go, he's sad because we're gonna protect kids? Walt Disney is rolling over at his grave. Mickey Mouse is like, how, this is what happens when a culture denies God. And look, we have tons of folks who have, have, have had this in their life and it's an issue and there's nothing beyond God's grace but it's our job to protect the weak and to say everyone cares we care about everybody what we don't it's, it's hypocrisy and we can't again we can't do everything but we can do something CBC and, and we're called to right and so I think that's a that's a takeaway as I thought about this text this week all right we gotta roll all right verse eight keep on all the people rose so that all the people are united. They rose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house. We're, we're gonna deal with this issue, right? And so all the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin saying, what is this evil? They said, what's going on in Benjamin that you guys would let this? Give us the men, these worthless fellows, and we'll purge the evil from, from Israel. But the Benjamites are not listening. For them, blood is thicker than water. So they're united. The people of Israel are united. And to save some time, uh, the next 20 or 30 verses, they go to war. They go to war. Israel versus Benjamin. Benjamin has 26,000 troops. Israel has 400,000 troops. Day one, Israel attacks. They lose 23,000 troops. Day two, Israel attacks. They lose 18,000. They're down 10% of their army now. And Benjamin's thinking pretty good about themselves. On day three, they set an ambush. What happens is they, they pretend they're gonna attack. They get close to the Benjamites and then they kind of pull like, run away, like, a, like a Monty Python, like run away, right? And, and, and the Benjamites come out of the city to chase them. But really what they did is they put a bunch of troops behind. As soon as they leave, they come in, they burn the city. The Benjamites then are smoked. And it, and it ends up that 25,000 of them who drew the sword all died. Only 600 make it and they flee. And then Israel and its brilliance, they go and they, they strike the entire tribe of Benjamin with the sword. Man, beasts, all that they found, they set them on fire. They wipe out everything, men, women, and children, so that there's only 600 Benjamites left. Crazy. And here, here's what I wanna highlight about this portion. 
the, the fact that Israel is able to unite so well is pretty impressive, actually. To get 400,000 people together for them, that is something they haven't done the entire book. Gideon couldn't do it. Deborah couldn't do it. Jephthah couldn't do it. Not on this level, not on this scale. As impressive as it is, it is also tragic. Because why is it that you can only get together like this to fight your brother? Why is it when the Midianites attack, you can't get all 400,000? Why is it that when the Moabites attack, you can't get all 400,000? Why is it when Jerusalem can't be conquered and the Jebusites are there, they can't get all 400,000 together to go in there? You tell me 400,000 people couldn't take a city? Why is it that they only can get together when they're fighting their brother? And the text actually highlights that they're fighting their brother. In verse 13, verse 23, and verse 28, it highlights that they are one Verse one, verse eight, and verse 11, that they are one. Why is it? And here's, here's kind of a second thought. I didn't have a great language for it, so I just said, I got questions about unity. Why is it that sometimes it's easier to get passionate about fighting our own team? Why is it easier for us to unite with something negative than not something positive? Now, does the sin of Gibeah need to be dealt with? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. There are times for us to deal with internal sin, times for us to deal with doctrinal error. But in those cases, by the way, the goal is always restorative, always. Even when God brings a nation to judge Israel in the sin cycle, why? So they would repent. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So why is it hard sometimes to just unite to do something together, positively, as one, as one body? If I say, okay, this Saturday, we're gonna have a pancake breakfast, all the pancakes, all the bacon you can eat. I mean, whole church will be there except for the vegans. They'd be off praying for us, but everybody else will be at church. Bacon. If I say, okay, next Saturday, we're gonna all come together and we're gonna strategically think about how we can have an impact on this neighborhood. It's like crickets. Is it gonna be bacon? Uh, let's get some, jump on a team, jump on a team with kids, jump on a team with neighbors, jump on a team, let's do something, let's move in a direction, let's see God work. You got any bacon? Why is it so difficult sometimes, right? Why is it so challenging? Um, why is it easy to get negative and not be positive? And this again is why as a church we try to be very rifled in our approach, not shotgun, where we can say, okay, we as a church want to have 120 orphans, boom, together. We can do that. We as a church, last summer, for those who were here, uh, we adopted a people group in Asia that doesn't have a copy of the scripture. And we said to forget them to get phase one of the Bible in their language, it's going to cost $100,000. And in one Sunday, boom, we provided them with the resources to have the copy of several books of the Bible. We did that in one Sunday when we got together. Actually, we had so much left over, we were able to finish another project too, right? See, that's what I'm excited about. We're gonna do that again, by the way, this summer. We'll let you know in plenty of time. We're gonna adopt another people group and provide them the scripture. And, and Lord willing, as long as I'm the pastor of CBC, I wanna do one of those a year. So that in 20, 25 years, our body will be responsible for providing people who don't have copies of the scripture, scripture in their own language. That's a that's, a, that's getting together. That, that's, I want that to be more common for us. Do we need to stand against wickedness sometimes? Absolutely. Racism, abuse, all these things, yes. But we need, I wanna be, I wanna be moving together too as a family. 
And I think sometimes it is real easy for us to forget who the enemy is, right? It's just like in, there's a scene in, I think it's, I'm like a movie guy today, and, and Hunger Games, I think it's part two. Katniss Everdeen, she's back in the Hunger Games. And that guy Finnick has to remind her, Katniss, remember who the enemy is. It's Donald Sutherland. <laughs> right? It, it, remember who, church, remember who the enemy is. You know who not the enemy? People. Now people may oppose us and people may reject us, but why are they doing that? Because the God of this world has blinded the, the minds of the unbelieving. They just need to be their minds to be opened by the spirit of God. They just need to be redeemed. They're not the enemy, even if they oppose. That's why we're to pray for our enemies. Colossians 4.1, that God would open a door for the word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That's our job, right? Our enemy is our adversary, the devil, who prowls like a roaring lion. That is the enemy. People are not the enemy. They may be, he may be using them, but they're not the enemy. I think that's important. And here's what's hard, I know this, because it's all over. Our culture now, you cannot disagree with someone. If you disagree with someone, that means you hate them. I, that is hard to navigate. I get it. It's very challenging. But here, here's what I would say. We need to figure out a way that we can disagree with people and still be gentle, respectful, and loving. And if we can do those three things and still disagree, they can still hate us, but at least we won't have been hateful. Don't give them fuel for their fire to think, because they really do think that you hate them if you disagree with them. They really do. We, so you gotta prove otherwise. And hospitality and gentleness, Right? These are just things we need to think through. They're just blinded. And here's, here's just another practical, this for me. Maybe this is only for me. Don't be so critical of other churches that are different. Now, I'm not talking about those who have fallen away from the faith. I'm not talking about those who deny orthodoxy, that deny salvation by grace through faith, the deity of Christ. I'm not talking about that. But those who are a little bit different flavor, maybe they're less reformed, more reformed. Maybe they do Oregon. Maybe they do whatever. Maybe their, their view on the end times is different than yours. Maybe their leadership structure, whatever. Don't be so critical. That they're not the enemy. I, when I was first starting ministry, went off to seminary, I thought I knew so much. I thought, you know, John Calvin, who, who is he? I know more than him. Wayne Grudem, he wrote a theology. He don't know what he's talking about. I just thought I knew. And every person that was different than my theological position, I just kind of had this, this air about me like, ah. Oh, yeah, well, they have the, you know, if you, if you heard something positive about them, you'd be like, oh, well, yeah, but you, you know this about him? I mean, he's, he's, he's a post-millennialist, I mean, really. And it's, it's, it sounds so mature, it's actually foolish. And so you read Philippians 1, you see Paul who says, hey, there's people that are preaching the gospel because they're envious of me. There's people preaching the gospel because they love money. There's people preaching the gospel just to stick it to the man. And he says, in this I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. Like that's maturity. I just want that to be us. I'm not, there's churches in this town that deny the gospel. I get it. We can't link arms with them, not for the gospel. But there's a lot of churches that do preach the gospel. And as long as, as they're preaching a salvation by grace through faith in what Christ has done and Christ alone, I can link arms with a lot of things with that as my foundation. And we can do it. As a church, man, if, if Jesus changes the, the world with 11 dudes, it's completely sold out, 
Man, I think that if we are united together, and some of you, you're, you're united intellectually, but you're not united full. you're not all in. I mean, you kind of show up, but you're not on the team. I mean, you might be sitting right behind the dugout like, oh, we want you in the dugout. Let's get on the, let's get on the field together and we'll see what God will do. One more thing, all right? This is why I come to first service. I'm tighter on time in the first service. All right, verse 20, chapter 21. So now the men of Israel had sworn, none of us shall give our daughters. They made this rash vow. We're not gonna let any of our daughters marry Benjamites. It's like me. I'm like, I am letting none of my kids marry Dallas Cowboy fans ever. Never happening. Nor Braves fans. Never gonna happen, right? So they make this rash vow, but the problem is that they're all upset. They lift up their voice. Oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened? It's because you killed everybody. There's, they're like, there's gonna, this tribe of Benjamin's gonna be gone. It's, it's gonna be gone. They got 600 men, they got no ladies. And we promised we're not gonna marry them. What are we gonna do? And so they come up with this plan. And I'll summarize because I'm, I'm almost out of time. They come up with this plan. They're like, um, who didn't come up when we gathered everybody? Who didn't, who didn't come up when we gathered the whole people? Who, because they made another vow. Whoever didn't come up, we're gonna kill them. And they're like, oh, this, oh we found out this tribe, Jabesh Gilead, they didn't come up. So they say, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna kill them all, except for the young teenage girls that aren't married. We'll take them and we'll give them to the Benjamites for wives. Brilliant. And you're like, you're shaking your head like what in the world? So that's their plan. Here's the problem. Go to one more, here we go. Um, it's the whole congregation, they go to them at the Rock of Ramon and Benjamin returned and they gave them the women, but there's not enough. So they just wiped out a whole other clan and they only got 400 wives for 600 men. They're like, what are we gonna do now? We're still 200 wives short. I got an idea, a guy in the back, dude in the back's like, I got an idea. All right, here's the problem. We can't give them our wives, our daughters, but it doesn't say anything about them taking our daughters. So here's what we got. There's this party up in Shiloh that happens every year and there's a dance and the teenage girls come out and dance Here's what we'll do. We'll tell all the Benjamites that don't have a wife yet, go hide in the bushes. And when they come out and dance, to just go pick one, grab her, throw her in the car and take her home. And they say, great idea. I mean, stranger danger, creeper, craziness going on here. It's the bachelor gone wild. And so that's what they do. All right, uh, and so the, the elders said, they, they come up with this plan. They said, go lie in ambush in the vineyards and they do it. And then they said, when their fathers and their brothers are all mad because they're gonna be mad and they're gonna come after you because you broke the rule and you gave them their wives. He said, oh, no, 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 you didn't give it to them. Look at the last part there. They were taken. <laughs> so you didn't break the law. You didn't break the vow because they stole them. Oh, good. It's legalism 101. I mean, and, and it's just sad. This is the way it ends. They did it, they take the wives, they carry the girls off. Poor little 13, 14 year old girls getting some creeper dude you know, on his donkey and they run off to live happily ever after. And the people of Israel departed from that time and went home and then here's how the book ends. There's no king in Israel, everyone does what's right in his own eyes. That's how the book ends. It's this horrible ending. I mean, it's like for those of you who got into that show Lost a couple years ago and you're like all 12, 13 years invested and you think it's gonna be some great and you find out they've been dead the whole time, you're like, that is the biggest waste of 12 years I've ever had. <laughs> I didn't watch the show. So I saw a polar bear in a commercial. I'm like, I'm not watching that dumb show. But this is the end. It's like, there's no, rede there's no redemption. There's no like positive thing at the end. Here's the positive thing. 
Here's just one piece of it. Is that even though Benjamin is knuckleheads and Israel are knuckleheads, what happens just a couple hundred years later is Israel does finally get a king. Who was the first king of Israel? Anybody know? Saul. What tribe was Saul from? Benjamin. Benjamin. Now, he was a knucklehead king, so we needed another king, a man after God's own heart. So God anoints a guy named David, who was a good king, but he was a knucklehead too. So we need a better king. And so several hundred years later, we get one. His name is Yeshua, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, lived the perfect life. And here's what this king did. This king didn't throw his wife out into the street to get beat and bloodied and bruised and abused. This king went out on his own and he took the beating for us so that we could be safe in the house. This king lays down his life for his bride. And so here's what I would say in closing. This book is a study on the nature of sin and the effects of sin. Let's fight sin. Because we see the effects of it. We see how it hurts other people. We see how it hurts us. We get desensitized. We get all these things. This is what sin does. Jesus came to pay for sin. And think about this. If, if the only payment for sin was that this perfect son of God would leave heaven and have to die on a cross for us, if that's how bad the punishment for sin is, then how bad's the disease? So anything you can do to fight sin and the, the, the effects of sin in your life that you can, uh, as Galatians says, don't grow weary of doing good and do season you'll reap. Anything you can do to fight sin will pay dividends for your soul. Don't go to legalism, right? But go to Jesus. And when you fail, you come back to a savior who has paid for your sin. That's the encouragement of the book. That's why we call it everyone needs a king. You need a king. Better than better than David, better than Hezekiah, better than Solomon, better than Moses, better than Abraham. That's Jesus. He's the king. He's the one we worship. Let's stand and let's worship him. Father, I ask that you would now, as we kind of just reflect just for a few moments on, on your son, the king of kings and lord of lords, that we would be a people who that just guard and are aware of our own blind spots and hypocrisy, that, that we would get into community and we would put ourselves under the word so we could see clearly, that we would be a people who fight and flee immorality, that, that we, if our right hand causes a stumble, we cut it off, that we mortify the flesh, that we put on the new man. Lord, that we would be a people that unify around the gospel and that your spirit would just use this body to make an impact wherever you send us, especially here first in this, in this neighborhood and then beyond. So do those things, Lord. We worship you. We're thankful for what you're gonna do in Christ's name.